From the University of California, Riverside, my name is Rick Bishop, and you are listening to the podcast for the Inland Center for Sustainable Development. The goal of our podcast is to discuss a range of regional issues that relate to the inland counties of San Bernardino and Riverside and have, as guests, a variety of leaders who are working to improve the quality of life here. Thank you for joining us. That brings us to this point here where I want to introduce and thank Greg Devereaux for coming here. Let me just do a real quick introduction of Greg. Greg um, has a long, long history of public service in uh, the inland uh, counties, primarily in San Bernardino County. He's got uh, about 40 years of public service, um, uh, most recently from 2010 to 2017. Greg was the CEO of San Bernardino County, where he helped uh, that county get its fiscal act together, uh, where he also helped um, uh, get the county moving in a, a path forward with respect to uh, its future growth. And he was probably most noted for uh, creating um, and spearheading a countywide vision in San Bernardino County that many uh, throughout the state and beyond have really replicated, duplicated, plagiarized. I don't know why else you'd say it, but it's all fine. It's what we do in government. It's what we do in government. Yeah, we look for somebody else has done it and just stamp our name on it yep. and move forward. But uh, I think that that was a, a really a preeminent step forward for San Bernardino County. Uh, before that, he served as the city manager uh, in the city of Ontario, and then I think prior to that in the city of Fontana. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, Greg, thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Um, we're going to kind of go through. I'm going to ask some questions uh, Greg's going to answer, and then if, we, uh, if, if there's a little bit of time, and if you're willing, Greg, maybe we can get some, some questions from love folks to, in the audience. Actually, love to hear the questions. Great, great. Well, let's just start. Um, tell us a little bit about your, your journey, your upbringing, your education, what brought you here into San Bernardino County. Well, the first thing I wanted to get out of the way is um, I took a header uh, on Saturday on my treadmill. I have a treadmill by me my bed. Uh, I get on it uh, 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 every day for about the last 20-some years and made a misstep. And So that's why uh, you see me with a Band-Aid. And uh, uh, being an old theater major, I just told my wife, uh, make sure I don't look like a raccoon. Put some makeup on me. I've worn makeup plenty of times. I'm not embarrassed to. So, <laughs> so well, um, uh, I actually uh, born and raised in West Virginia. Um, and um, uh, went to school there at West Virginia University, did my undergraduate work in theater, um, and uh, actually did a lot of summer stock and, and uh, actually was an artist in residence for a while at the Dallas Theater Center. Um, and while I was in theater, decided that um, uh, I really saw a lot of theaters that weren't working very well. And I determined that they weren't working very well for one of two reasons. They either had administrators trying to administer to them but didn't have a background in theater or the arts, or they had artists with no administrative <clears throat> background. And I really thought you had to have both to have a successful theater. So I became more and more interested in how would I combine, how would I gain um, administrative uh, knowledge. And at that time, in the entire country, there were no training programs in theater administration. Uh, one very small program in um, Saginaw, Michigan. Um, uh, other than that, there were, there were no programs. Today, you can get a master's uh, in theater administration. Um, uh, so 
anybody that was interested in that combination was finding their own path. Some people were going and getting MBAs, and some people were going to law school, and some people were going into accounting to try to gain that administrative knowledge. And so um, I had also always been, I grew up kind of uh, uh, being associated with government. My father was um, uh, uh, active in a number of campaigns. We were um, active in the John Kennedy campaign. And if you remember, if you know those times, uh, West Virginia was actually a turning point um, uh, in his journey to the, the presidency. And so I was always also interested in government, so I thought, well, I'll go to law school so that I can figure out how to be an arts administrator. And mm -hmm. uh, while I was uh, in law school, I got the opportunity um, to go to the National Endowment for the Arts and be a fellow at the National Endowment for the Arts. Um, and I had to go to the State Arts Council to get them to sponsor me for that fellowship. And when I went, um, the gentleman who was head of the State Arts Council had actually been at the endowment. He'd been in West Virginia, went to the endowment. He was the head of all the performing programs. Came back to West Virginia because the then governor said, Norm, if you will come back, I will create a department of culture and history and I will build a building for the department right next to the, the Capitol building. Uh, and it'll house the state museum, the state library, um, uh, have a theater in it that people can uh, perform. And he told me, he said, stay in touch. I was in my uh, second year of law school. He said, stay in touch. I may have something for you. Uh, if we form this department, uh, you, you might be somebody that I'm looking for. And sure enough, they formed this department, one of only five states at the time that had um, a uh, department of culture that was also in the cabinet. So he was actually in the governor's cabinet. They formed the department just as I was coming out of, of law school, and he asked me to come and be his executive assistant. Now, this gentleman uh, was a programmer. I mean, he was into program. He really understood program. He had grown up in the theater, knew dance, knew the arts really well, and he knew program. He said, look, I want you to take your legal training, and I want you to be the administrative head of the department. Now, I was fresh out of law school. I didn't have any background. Um, but there were people there who had been hired um, and really you know, knew state government, um, the controller knew state government, the, the, the administrative uh, person. But I, he said, you know, he, I don't want to deal with any of that. You deal with it. So it taught me budgeting, personnel, uh, uh, all of those things that you need to know to be an administrator. It was a great, great experience. Um, I did that for five years. And actually, we had to build all of the systems, get all the people under civil service. I mean, it was a terrific experience. But toward the end, I had kind of built the systems, got all the personnel on, got everybody hired. 
and more and more I became kind of the corporate memory. I mean, I was, you know, I, I knew how it was all built, I knew what it was doing, but it, it was very easy. And I really thought it was time for me to see and do something else. And so I was looking around, I really wanted to be a state arts council director, but I was a little young, I was still under 30, and I was getting close, I was getting interviews, but not quite getting the job. And I saw this job in Long Beach, California, that was head of cultural services for the city. And I applied, got an interview, came out, did the interview, and got the job offer, and came to Long Beach to work for the city of Long Beach, this was in 1982, uh, as a division head for cultural services. We had the Long Beach Museum of the Art. We had the, the Long Beach Municipal Band, for those of you who don't know, the Long Beach Municipal Band uh, actually uh, has over a 100-year history. Um, uh, but at the time I was managing it, it was all of these incredible studio musicians. Now, I, I love music and love jazz. There were players like Pancho Sanchez, if you've heard of him, a guy by the name of Ron Eshte, who's a very famous uh, jazz guitar player, uh, bass player by the name of Luther Hughes that uh, played with the, the Crusaders for a while. I mean, these were really substantial players and all these horn players that were in the Johnny Carson band and, you know, uh, uh, so terrific band. So it was a lot of fun. Long Beach at the time was managed by a gentleman by the name of John Deaver. Now, John Deaver in the city management business was somewhat of an icon. He had been president of the International City Managers Association. He was uh, known for the Sunnyvale miracle, which was turning the city of Sunnyvale around and really putting it on the map. And Deaver um, came to Long Beach when Long Beach was in crisis. Uh, they had the Queen Mary, they had uh, people who were being indicted, uh, they had a planning um, director that went to jail, they had um, uh, another city manager who probably should have gone to jail, um, uh, and uh, I mean, it, it was a real crisis. And um, back, that was the time when the pike was still there and you know the downtown had really become very rough. None of what you see in downtown Long Beach was there. Well, Deaver was the guy that came in and did that. Now, John Deaver was a very interesting man, probably had the best poker face that I ever saw, former Marine colonel, um, and John Deaver managed the, the city of Long Beach, which at that time, Long Beach was about the 35th largest city in the United States. Um, and Deaver managed Long Beach, one of those guys with a clean desk. You know, you ever went in his office, there wasn't a piece of paper on his desk. Never handled a piece of paper more than twice. You know, more than once, actually, I'm sorry. More than once. I mean, he'd read it, put a note on it. He wouldn't even dictate a memo or anything like that or do another memo. He'd just, you know, uh, you were suggesting a new program, he'd send back a, no. No, we're not doing that. No. Uh, that, was, that was his way of managing. And it took me a while to figure out that when Deaver said no, um, if you came back and you said, well, you know, really think this is a good idea. Well, what about this? 
You know, and you'd go back and forth six or seven times. And I didn't understand for a while that what he was doing was buying you in and getting you out on that limb so that you were going to do everything you possibly could to make sure that you gave 150% to try to make that work. And everybody thought that if it didn't work, he'd chop your head off. Wasn't the case. If you really put yourself out there, did it, he was fine. Uh, he just wanted to make sure that you had thought it all the way through and you were going to manage. I know that's a long story, but the point is that John Deaver was a very innovative guy. Long Beach at the time probably had about 6,000 employees, maybe 800 managers. Every six months, he rotated about 30 of those managers because his theory was that if you were a manager, you should be able to manage in any discipline provided you had proper technical support. So he would rotate managers. We literally had deputy police chiefs that came over to be head of redevelopment, heads of redevelopment that went over to the police department to be a police captain or a deputy chief. Uh, so he would do that. Now, from a management standpoint, it was fascinating because he did it for three different reasons. He did it to teach somebody their job better. So we had a purchasing agent that if you didn't have the I's dotted and the T's crossed, uh, you weren't going to get whatever it was you purchased. He was going to put you through the, the ringer. Well, he heard, Deaver heard about a situation where there was some sports equipment that wasn't going to be available for a league. So he rotated that guy over to be that head of sports that was going to have to deal with those parents on opening day and those kids on opening day. When that guy came back, you better believe he was a way better purchasing agent. So that was one reason. The other one is he really believed that every city manager has the obligation to train other city managers. And so he would rotate some people around to give them that kind of experience. The last one was sometimes somebody wasn't right for a position. They hadn't done anything bad enough to, to be fired. Uh, we had a guy in sports who kept uh, creating issues, and they'd pack the council chambers. Um, and Deaver finally rotated him over to be head of janitors at City Hall and he never rotated back. Yeah. Well, I got the opportunity while I was head of cultural services to rotate over to housing and neighborhoods, which was in community development. Community development in Long Beach, they were the best and the brightest. They were the ones that were starting to rebuild the city and hotels were starting to come and all that. So I really welcomed that opportunity not because I thought I wanted to go into community development, but because I thought that I could learn how a city was financed. In the arts, I was always making economic arguments for the arts because I had learned that they sold better than quality of life arguments. So if I went to a legislative body and said, it, this will improve the economy. But I didn't really know whether it would improve the economy or how the economy <laughs> in the city would work. So I thought, great opportunity. I'll go learn that. 
and then I'll go off and be a state arts council director. Well, I got over into housing and neighborhood development, and they had something we never had in the arts. They had money. <laughs> they had so much money that they were about to start losing some of their CDBG allocation because you can only carry so much of it at one time. And I looked at it. Now, they had all of this money. They had a big staff, and they were doing about 20 rehab loans a year. Well, coming from theater, I knew how to do program. I knew how to spend money. So we went from uh, 100 loans a year, I mean, 20 loans a year to over 100 loans a year in the first year. And we started doing all of these neighborhood fix-up, clean-up programs throughout the city, going into whole neighborhoods and doing paint jobs on houses and putting in lawns and doing all that. And council was very happy. Mr. Deaver was happy. Um, and then something happened to me that really changed my course. We were also, this is at a time in the country, so this was um, about 85. The tax laws were very different. So lots, and Tony Mize, my good friend who has been doing housing for decades, knows this well. They were doing lots and lots of affordable housing. They were doing affordable housing towers. I mean, you know, the tax laws were such that you, you could do really good projects. And the first time that I saw a mother <coughs> with two kids who had been living on the streets in her car go into a new unit and have a home and have a home for those kids, it changed the course of my life. Because I loved being in the arts and I loved being involved in that and the contribution that we made but I thought that contribution compared to the contribution of getting someone in a home just didn't equate to me uh, so uh, I went off on another path uh, ended up doing housing and neighborhoods there and then going to the city of Garden Grove for my first department head job um, uh, I was there doing housing and redevelopment, um, was there for about five years, and then got the opportunity to go to Fontana. Now, why would you go from Garden Grove to Fontana? Well, Garden Grove was kind of a built-out city. Mm -hmm. I mean, it had things that it needed. I mean, it had some rehab that it needed, and I had code, code enforcement, the housing authority, all those kind of programs. But Fontana... Out in the Inland Empire, we had some of the largest redevelopment agencies in the entire state. Now, that was because they had put a lot of land, vacant land, that later became illegal to do that, but the ranchos of the world, Fontanas of the world, put a lot of vacant land in their redevelopment agency. So as development was happening, they were developing a lot of tax increment. So um, both Rancho and Fontana were in among the 10 largest redevelopment agencies in the entire state. And I thought, wow, in Fontana, not only would I get to work on revitalizing areas because it had an old downtown and had areas that needed re revitalized, but I'd get to do new development. 
didn't really get to do new development in, in Garden Grove. The other thing was that my very first job that I told you about, that was a startup. It was a brand new Department of State Government. Everything I did after that was a fix-up. Now, at first, by happenstance, I didn't know I was getting into fix-ups when I went to Long Beach or over to, to redevelopment and housing in, in Long Beach. Or, or even when I went to Garden Grove, I didn't know it was a fix-up. But by the time I got through Garden Grove, I was seeking out fix-ups. I really liked the dynamic of going into dysfunctional or underperforming organizations and by then had learned that they have, they, there is a dynamic, there is an arc in going into those situations and turning them around. I knew that Fontana was in trouble. The city manager that hired me said, look, I'm putting together a team to come in and try to turn this around. Um, and uh, he, he had, he was in a num. he was the, uh, fourth or fifth in a line of city managers um, uh, that had gone through Fontana in rapid succession. But nobody quite knew how bad it was. So he put together this team, and uh, this was in uh, 1992, and, and uh, 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 I came in, and uh, it kept getting worse. The more we found out, the more the team found out, uh, brought in a really good finance director that had the, the great privilege to work with. And it just kept getting worse, and we kept laying off more and more people. Ten months after I got there, uh, at about 3 o'clock in the morning um, uh, at one council meeting, uh, on the city manager's birthday, actually, um, uh, they came out and announced that he had been fired. And uh, they said, uh, we'd like you to come into the room. I came into the room. Now, I knew I wanted to be a city manager by, at that point. I wasn't so sure I wanted to be the city manager of Fontana <laughs> because I was going to be the sixth city manager in five years. Now, that meant they were real used to firing city managers. <laughs> there was one other really big problem, and that problem was that I was taking over in June of 93, and we were going to be out of cash not able to make payroll, not able to pay vendors in October of 93. Now, I'm really proud to say that when I left four years later, um, they had started repaving streets, rehiring cops, and had $40 million in the bank. Now, I want to be real careful here because I'm not claiming I did that. City government? Governance is a team sport. It is a group activity. And so I was blessed. I had a good mayor, a good council that was willing to support what needed to be done. We were able to get community support. We had good people uh, in every position. Uh, so we were able to turn it around. Ontario had gone through some changes. Um, uh, they, that was your next stop. They had some um, um, uh, fiscal issues too. They saw what we had done over in Fontana and so a couple of the, the council people from uh, Ontario approached me, said we'd like to talk to you. 
would like you to come over. Um, uh, and I thought long and hard about it because I really liked what we were doing in Fontana. We were making a lot of progress. And I'm happy to say that Fontana stayed on that course. The Fontana you see today, that course was really set way back then. But Ontario had more going on. It was uh, a full-service city. Uh, uh, Fontana was not. Fontana had a fire district, did not have its own water utility. Uh, Ontario had all of those things. And that, for city managers, can be a tough transition to make, going from a city that is not a full-service city to a full-service city. So I thought, I can't pass this up. And I thought, it's also politically a lot more stable city manager situation is a lot more stable. Instead of being the sixth city manager in five years, as I was in Fontana, I was going to a much more stable city uh, where I was going to be the fifth in six years. I thought that's a lot more stable. <laughs> if you do the percentages, it's, you know, it's, it's right. Uh, yeah. yeah. So uh, fortunately, uh, uh, it worked out, and I was there 12 and a half years, um, and um, uh, we were able to get them um, straightened around in terms of uh, the organizational issues they had and the fiscal issues they had. And then I, I had a rare opportunity. Um, uh, Gary Ovid, who uh, was at that point chairman of the board, of the Board of Supervisors, had been uh, my first, well, not my second mayor in, in Ontario, but shortly after I got there, the mayor left and, and Gary became mayor. And we had a terrific working relationship. Things at the county were not good. Um, this is, um, uh, this was, uh, he came to me in about mid-09 um, uh, and started talking about this idea. Um, at that point, uh, the Great Recession had started hitting. The uh, county had a um, had a uh, over a five billion dollar budget, but only about a five hundred million dollar general fund. Now, cities are just the opposite; have big general funds. Counties have a lot of um, social safety net funds and and uh, specialty funds, uh, so they don't have a very big general fund. Well, in that general fund of about five hundred million, they had uh, an eighty million dollar deficit. Um, uh, in 09. Um, uh, and at the same time, uh, a former supervisor who uh, was the then uh, assessor had been indicted. There were FBI investigations. There were, uh, there was a lot of talk of additional indictments uh, to come for uh, alleged criminal activities. Um, and Gary came to me and said, you know, uh, we're, we're getting rid of the, the CAO, the chief administrative officer, um, and I'd really like you to come. Well, I wasn't looking, but liking fix-ups and liking challenges, um, I decided I really wanted to know with a group of, of very good people, we had been able to turn Fontana around and, and Ontario around, and I truly didn't know whether those same principles would apply at the scale of the county, because Ontario had about a $500 million budget um, and about 1,500 employees. Well, the county at that point had a $5.5 billion budget 
and 22,000 employees. Um, and cities and counties are very different. And, and, I, and I think yeah. I'll take a moment, if it's okay, and, yeah. and just talk about that. Cities are independent corporations, and they have all of the corporate powers in relation to municipal affairs that the legislature hasn't hadn't taken away. So if the legislature hasn't taken away, they have all of those corporate powers. Anything they haven't taken away, um, they have. Counties are not corporations at all. So cities are municipal corporations. Counties are not corporations. Counties are arms of the state. They are extension of the state. And they only have the corporate powers that the legislature has given. They haven't taken very many away from cities. They haven't given very many to counties. So things that I could do in the city, things that the city council could delegate to me in the city, the Board of Supervisors can't delegate because of state law. So I, I had $250,000 signature authority in the city. In the county, every single contract has to go to the County Board of Supervisors. So no, no signature authority for, for anything. One of the other big differences is cities think that um, counties are just big cities. They think of them as being legally the same kind of structure, functioning the same way, under the same rules and statutes. <coughs> Not true at all. And so um, uh, cities, we all know what cities do. I mean, municipal services, police, fire, parks, roads. We understand trash. We understand that. Counties, I think, are the least understood form of government, other than maybe special districts, but, but I think really it's counties because counties, the scope of counties is much broader. In our entire system, we know what the federal government does, we know what cities do, but what do counties do? Well, cities all think that counties do the same thing they do. But counties really have four lines of business. Biggest line of business is the social safety net. Food stamps, um, uh, things like child protective services, adult protective services, um, uh, you know, all the job training programs, all of that. That's their biggest line of business. Second biggest line of business is law and justice. Sheriff, DA, probation, um, uh, you know, uh, all of those, public defender, all of those, that's their second line of uh, business. Third line of business um, is really the cross-cutting services, assessor, auditor, controller, things that they do for everyone. Their smallest line of business is municipal services in county unincorporated areas. But cities think that's their biggest line of business, that they function just like them, not true at all. Now, having said that, in San Bernardino County, the number of people in the county unincorporated areas is twice as large as the largest city. So even though it's the smallest line of business for the county, it would be 
twice as large as any city in the, the county. Now, the other big difference is that in cities, you have a mayor and a council, and you might have a couple of other minor elected offices. Some places have an elected city clerk, some places have an elected city treasurer. And the really uh, out there, uh, every once in a hundred cities, you might find an elected city attorney. Um, but uh, primarily, it's the city council. City council um, kind of functions as the board of directors of the corporation, the elected board of directors, and they appoint a chief executive, the city manager. Everyone else, if it's a true council manager form of government, everyone else is hired by and reports to the city manager other than those other minor electeds and the city attorney. Everyone else hired by reports to the city manager, right? Very clean, very organized system. You understand how it works. Not so much in the counties. County, you have a group of separately elected, independently elected city uh, county officials, sheriff, district attorney, assessor, auditor controller, all of those run directly and are voted in by the people. They do not report to the board. They do not report to the CEO. Now, I, when I went to the county, I said, given the crisis, we need to change from a chief administrative officer to a chief executive officer. And we can talk about that later if anybody wants to. I mean, there's a significant difference there. So you've got all those independently elected officials. That means that counties and cities operate very differently. Though the county has control over the budget of the sheriff and the DA, they can't tell the sheriff who to arrest. They can't tell the DA who to prosecute. They don't report to them. They don't work for them. So in the city, if the city council was concerned because car thefts had gone up, and they communicate that to the city manager, city manager agrees, city manager calls the police chief who he has hired, who he can fire, whose next raise is dependent on how, how he is with the city manager, says, chief, council's really concerned about all these car thefts. I guarantee you, if not the next morning, by the end of that week, there's a team working on car thefts. In the county, if the same thing happened, the Board of Supervisors came to the CEO and said, you know, we're really concerned about these car thefts throughout the county, not good, good for the county, um, uh, why don't you talk to the sheriff? If I had called the sheriff, after he either stopped laughing or telling me where to go, he would have said, well, sure, give me a couple more million dollars and I'll be happy to take care of that for you. Because he doesn't have to do anything. So cities are about the structure, the hierarchy, the reporting. Counties are all about relationship. And to get things done in the county, you have to have relationship. 
So I, I stayed there um, uh, for seven years as CEO. I, I, uh, we were able to get their financial situation straightened out. I think we substantially changed the culture of corruption that had existed. Um, and we can talk about that because you cannot, as a manager, guarantee that there won't be criminal activity or corruption, but there are system things that you can do. There are systems that you can put in place um, uh, that certainly diminish the opportunity for corruption or criminal activity. Yeah, good stuff. So I was there for seven years and uh, retired three years ago and am okay. consulting. Yeah, and consulting now. Yeah, that's that's well. That's a wide breadth of experience, and can't agree more with those those relationships that you have in a city as compared to a county. Because uh, many of you that follow county government, for example, um, you know, if you're a city manager, your police chief uh, very rarely would go to a city council meeting and start ripping on you for budget issues or budget mm -hmm. shortfalls. But an elected sheriff, uh, no problem at all. <laughs> and so that's the relationship building aspect of, of governing at the county level, just one example. For more information about the Inland Center for Sustainable Development, please visit our website at icsd.ucr.edu and follow us on Twitter at icsducr. <laughs>